0: Hello and welcome to the 44th episode of Tailoring in Conversation. My name is Reza and in this series I'll be talking to tailors, business owners, cloth merchants and other industry participants from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is John Davis from Tobias Davis. John is a bespoke tailor currently based in South London and along with his daughter Roxanne exclusively works for the tailoring houses on Savile Row. As the former owner of Tobias Taylors at number 32, John has spent a good 50 years on Savile Row and is here today with us to share his story. Let's go. John, thank you for making the time. Thank you for being here with me. I've, uh, I've got tons of questions. We just spoke off camera as well about some other topics that I'm very curious to, to know your opinion on, but let me start by saying hello and uh, how are you doing?
1: Hi, thank you, and thanks for inviting me on this. It's 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 a pleasure. I've really been looking forward to this, actually.
0: Very happy to hear that. So, so John, I've uh, I think the first time I saw your work was on Instagram, but I've I've I had never heard of Tobias Taylors, obviously because I'm very young. But i I'm, uh, I'm very curious now that I'm speaking to you. Um, I'd like to know a little bit of, 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 of Tobias Taylor's, uh, if, where it started and, and kind of like how it developed. And, uh... Well,
1: 1889 is when it started. Um, mm-hmm. And um, they weren't originally in Savile Row, but then a lot of shops that are in Savile Row weren't originally in Savile Row anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Tobias initially were Shaftesbury Avenue, so nice. there was still... It, when I was um, first starting the trade in the 60s, Savile Row was more of an area rather mm-hmm. than just one road. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the companies that are in... I mean, Kilgows were in Dover Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Geese and Hawks were two separate companies. One of them was in Bond Street. So it was an area. A lot were down Sackville Street. Um, and Of course, as Taylor and Shrunk, then it's become... Mm-hmm less and less of this wide area. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that may slightly be changing because I think there's a a turn back to smaller shops taking premises. Obviously, they can't afford the Savile Row rents and rates, so they're, mm-hmm. they're creating businesses just outside the area. So I think it, it may even be going back to that, which is quite mm-hmm. good because um, it, it – keeps it going, it keeps Savile Row going, and keeps the whole tradition going, as it were.
0: Mm -hmm. I see. So actually, Savile Row is a distillation of um, uh, the tailoring scene in London shrinking and concentrating in one area, and now it's expanding again, and it's going uh, back.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there's... uh, Oh, there's Dougie. His business was Mount Street, and, and so... There's several tailors who have successful without actually having to be on Savile Row um, and quite famous as well, you know, quite a lot of them. Um, uh, Savile Row was, became a destination and, and as, it, as I said, as it's shrinking,
2: mm-hmm. then
1: those businesses... You can see some of the windows in Savile Row. They've got six or seven businesses written on them. But those yes. businesses it, were actually viable businesses that are actually working mm-hmm. so um, it has it has shrunk and mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that matters but like like we just said um, it it's expanding again I think mm-hmm. I, I think small, like you said earlier the small smaller tailors are starting their own business now obviously they can't full start-up prices in Savile Row so they're mm-hmm. finding workshops and little places to to find a place to work mm-hmm. I mean I I have a few that um, some up near the Ox Tower, some down in St James's. Some, but as long as your your clients are quite happy,
2: mm-hmm. then
1: because at the end of the day, that's what they're going for. They're, they're going mm-hmm. for a suit where it's made is is as long as it's made by proper saddle rotators and not in mm-hmm. a factory. Then you'll get you're getting the class of work. It doesn't matter where you're fitting that or or, or doing it. Sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, John, you've, you've had your own company on Savile Row And uh, yeah. you've had enough time to be on Savile Row See it develop uh, how, f- First of all, how did you start your tailoring career? And how did you get to a position where you actually managed to have your own shop on Savile Row? Because I saw the photos and it, it didn't look like a small workshop in a basement It actually looked oh, like I, a proper shop so, It was a so, shop. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about the trajectory of starting out and then having your own shop uh, and uh, and everything in between.
1: Right. Take some explaining, but I'm, I'm good at that. That's <laughs> I, started, good. I left school. I went to a grammar school. So my father expected me to be an accountant. That's what right. you did. You went to grammar school, you were an accountant or you something like that. Um, so I did accountancy for a year. Um, and I hated it. It's not, I didn't hate accountancy. I was quite good with it, but I just didn't like offices. It was, they were, especially in the sixties, they were mm-hmm. really stuffy. Even on a red hot mm-hmm. day, you had to have your tie on, you had to have your jacket on. And I thought, I can't do this. And I, I always had a, a flair uh, and a liking for fashion. I mean, it's this is the sixties. So I was a mod. I had my scooter and clothes were really important to us. We, we, um, you know, it, it was Cecil G's in them days and, and you had to have the proper shoes and the, and the mohair trousers. And, and so it was a constant all the time. You, you were picking the next fashion statement that you were going to wear on your scooter or go to the dance. Um, and, and that sort of helped me. Um, I sort of, it was, I was going between that and hairdressing. They were the two. <laughs> and it just so happened that a girl I was going out with at the time, Her sister came home one night with her boyfriend and he Mm -hmm. had the best suit I've ever seen in my life on. I went, wow, where did you get that? And his magic words to me was, oh, I made it. That, that did it. Wow. Yeah. And he he said, I'm a a tailor. Um, And the sad thing is, I don't know his name and I've never known. I've probably worked alongside him. So so that was my impetus. And he gave me... um, three shops to go and see and the first one was Huntsman's I went to Huntsman's that was the first interview and um the chap I saw he said that the apprenticeships were seven years with sort of three years four years and then a two two three year appro- improving and I thought wow seven years um, And as, as I said earlier I I was a year in accountancy so I'm now 19 whereas mm-hmm. most most apprentices were starting at 16. And I thought, wow, I'll be be mid-20s before I finish my apprenticeship. Um, So then Kilgoyne's was my next uh, interview, and I went along to that. And as as I said to you earlier, um, I was interviewed by Fred himself, Fred Stanbury, a lovely old guy. And I said to him, I I know I'm 19, um, but my dad has quite happily knows that I'm not going to get the wages I was getting in accountancy, um, but he's willing to fund that while I do my apprenticeship. So we had a lovely chat and then Fred went, okay. And he sent me up the workshop and I started on the Monday. Um, mm-hmm. So that was my entrance into tailoring was, was via seeing someone's suit that he had on. Looked great.
0: Mm. So a and question, then, <clears throat> yeah. why, did, why did they advancement say, what, seven years, they said? It would That's take you what seven.
1: I was told at the time. So um, what did
0: they mean by that? Did they mean that it would take you seven years to learn or to master?
1: Um Seven years, probably probably the apprenticeship would take three to four years. And then you went uh-huh. on, this is the way I understood it, you went on some improver thing. Uh-huh. I mean, counselors for several years were um, section work. Mm-hmm. So you, weren't, you didn't sort of see a tailor or, or see a cutter and you give it to a tailor and it was made.
2: Mm-hmm. It went
1: to one lot to make the sleeves. And that's how they run for a long time, Huntsman's. Um, yeah. Whereas Kilgas, you you learn, you got the coat, you made the coat, you sent it over to shop. That that's it. And then you got it back, you pressed it and buttoned it and it was ready to for the client. Um mm-hmm. so that's that's how he we went on that. And I then started, I mean, I couldn't believe Cool hours because my governor that taught me the trade, I said, Is it going to take? I said to him, Is it going to take me four years to he went, Hey, you'll learn as fast as you can learn. He said, Mm -hmm. You've got the advantage of being 19 and not 16, so you're a bit brighter and a bit further along the line. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully, pick things up quicker. And I did Mm -hmm. two and a half years, I was putting sleeves in. Um, Wow. Three years came I was I was done and um, Mr. Shearer started giving me work on my own so
0: right so and another question was because three years is very reasonable and I think yeah. that most people who even nowadays hear about five-year apprenticeships six-year apprenticeships it kind of like I wouldn't say it intimidates them but it does affect their decision making whether to continue or not now the question well, yeah. that I have is did you learn pretty much everything you had to learn and become a code maker within three years because you spent an in incredible amount of time in it or was it the system that they had implemented for apprentices to learn as quickly as possible? What was, what caused that?
1: It was a system. Um, most, uh, well, in fact, all of the tailors on our floor in Kilgows had two apprentices. Right. So um, what they had, they had, an apprentice that was getting near the end of his... So had about a year left for his apprenticeship, and then they'd take on a new one. So that's mm-hmm. where I came in. I, right. I came when Alan, who was the apprentice above me, had about a year left. So I supplied him with what he'd tell me what to do. My, my my governor would sit there. It was three boards together. And he would um, tell Alan how to set the work out, and then mm-hmm. I would supply Alan. So he'd say, John, I need those in breasts. I need that. And so he taught me all the pockets and and all that, mm-hmm. um, right up until that was for about two years, two yeah roughly two years, and then after that first year, Alan left, and I became the major apprentice, and we got another one, young Frank, who came mm-hmm. in under me. And I'd give him say, right Frank, I need those canvases, I need those pockets, mm-hmm. and then Norman Norman would then show me the the tailoring things that needed to be shown. Um, mm-hmm. Putting sleeves in, putting collars on. They're, mm-hmm. they're the, the hard bits. They're the bits if you don't get right, you can... And, um, I mean, canvassing, I learnt from a very... Right from the off, Alan showed me that. And uh, I still think I'm pretty good at canvassing. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And that's a make-or-break. if you get that wrong, the job's, jobs had it. Um, mm-hmm. But then... Um, facings, Norman showing me how to put facings on properly and then collars and then sleeves. And then the last, I think the last six months of my apprenticeship, I was, by that time, Frank had gained a lot more knowledge himself mm-hmm. who was underneath me and we were looking at another apprentice then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was basically putting in just sleeves for six months and doing collars. So I was concentrating on those final pieces mm-hmm. of, of the jacket. Um, and yes, that's, yes. And it works really well, that system. It really did work mm-hmm. well um it was a constant one one in talk mm-hmm. and young one there he gets yeah. taught he moves on to becomes a tailor you move up here another one in here and it, mm-hmm. it worked, it worked. Yeah. and we had a young uh girl that used to work with her with us and she was the finisher mm-hmm. so um we all worked in a little team together and it, it was great great way of doing mm-hmm. it
0: you know, the, the the apprentices teaching apprentices system that you just described, um, as, as I'm listening to you, it, it, it is incredibly powerful because I think when you're teaching someone, even if you are not yet a master tailor in the fullest sense, the fact that you're teaching someone also helps you to improve your your articulation around the technique. Now, I have a question about apprentices teaching apprentices. And the question is, you know, there is always uh, some sort of, uh, let's say, thought of credibility, you know, when you see an old tailor, uh, they are usually in the first impression, at least far more credible than when you see a young tailor. Now, when when, when I first kind of like started my apprenticeship, I, I think we had other apprentices as well, who then would, for example, try to show me something. Now. Um, whether this was uh, a bad habit on my part or, or maybe a good habit, uh, I, I will be able to tell that in, in good time. But at the time when that happened, I was always thinking, how is this young person who's probably been doing this for like only two years? How is that person going to teach me when they don't have built up the credibility and the years of experience how, how was that in a larger scale at Kilgars? Did you get those, those uh, conversations or was it just accepted as, as it, was?
1: it was? It was kind of accepted because it, it, it worked. We'd, we'd mm-hmm. seen it work. We'd seen the, the tailor who was in his last year. We'd seen the, the them go on to become tailors. So that mm-hmm. you knew when you were in that position, you yeah. knew you would make it as a tailor because that's how the system worked. The other, mm-hmm. the other thing, which I didn't mention earlier, which helped us a lot is, as I said to you earlier, um Kilgatt's had 20 apprentices in that mm-hmm. one workshop and eight, nine, 10 tailors, something like that. So mm-hmm. you're constantly walking around the room, especially lunchtime. So you're chatting to one of your mates and he might be working. He, he can't have lunch that time because he's got something to, for a deadline. So he's doing a well. And you're watching, you think, and he's been taught a different way of doing the welt than you have. And you, so you look, and, oh, I didn't, oh, you can do that, can you? Mm-hmm. And that really helped. Um, mm-hmm. I even taught my governor how to put a back in because mm-hmm. he used to put a back in a really old fashioned way with little nicks and it makes the top of the vent weak. Mm-hmm. And I was shown by one of the Italian tailors on the floor below us how to put a back in in one piece without doing that, and how to turn the mm-hmm. vent in. And it made so much more sense. There was no weak points. There was no... Mm. So I started doing it. And then one day, Norman was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm putting the back in. And he said, I've not seen you. That's not how I showed you. So he came round and he watched.
0: And he went, oh, yeah. so, oh, yeah.
1: that's That's good. <laughs> yeah, that was apprentice teaching master at the time. But mm-hmm. I picked another tailor, and it's that's... That's the beauty of being in a a big workshop is you've got all those different... And as long as you've got that sort of brain that you're quite happy to take on board something that maybe you haven't been shown that way, but that way looks actually better than the way you have been shown, Mm -hmm. um, you take it on. And I think that's that's where rocks has um, had the good time for that because Mm -hmm. I've learned in the 50 years, I've learned my method of mm-hmm. making a coat taking all these different nuances from loads of different tailors I like mm-hmm. he did the way he did that I like the way he did that I've been out of teach that to Roxy one to one there's only her yeah. workshops as so she's had it. it it's not like as I say in Kilgaz when you had a lot of um, apprentices there's obviously a lot of conversation with that apprentice this apprentice but with Rox I've had a just one to one and mm-hmm showing her and and I'm showing her the methods that's taken me 50 years to learn like you know Mm -hmm. she's getting them handed to her on a plate which is uh which is good yeah yeah.
0: exactly yes yes so I actually do have a few questions about that but before I get to those questions so how so you went through your apprenticeship and then how did you transition, or when did you transition into having your own shop? Because having your own shop is not something one just does. It, it especially on Savile Row, um, there are established companies; they all have big names, big clientels. So, how does a young man set up a shop uh, on Savile Row?
1: Well, I, I um, yeah, that was I, I finished my apprenticeship. If you want me to go back that far, sure. Um, I, I finished my apprenticeship and then it's a bit like I found, found it a bit like going to university. When you finished, mm-hmm. you didn't want to do it for a year. So yeah. I took a year out. Um, I moved to Knightsbridge and worked in the King's Road uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in all the sort of boutiques that were in the King's Road at the time to, see, to sort of just learn that side of it, um, not mm-hmm. the tailoring side. And it was great because it taught me about selling. It taught me about style. And what sold and what didn't. Um, and the King's Road in the 60s was absolutely buzzing, so it was a great place to be. Um and that that helped. And then after a year, which is sort of my university year out, as it were, um, yeah. I thought, yeah, now I'm ready to go back to tailoring. So I went up the old workshops in Kilgows, and as soon as I walked in, my gun went, What are you doing? And I said, Oh, I was doing this, for doing that, I'm I'm thinking of getting back in the table. And he said, no, you won't. You'll start now with me. And so that was it. I had a job straight away and I started working for him. And I did that. And he left Kilgows. So I went on my own and took took the apprentice with me. And then I got... I I was... Because of the King's Road um, link, Mm. I had lots of mates from there who wore fabulous clothes. Um, And then one of them said to me... Oh, you couldn't make me a jacket. And in those days, it was that 60s, really tight, narrow shoulders, tight here, got to the waist and flared out, really, real big flare, it was lovely. So I made him a jacket, and he worked for Mr. Fish at the time.
2: Mm-hmm. And he wore it,
1: my dad, and Michael said to him, where'd you get that from? And he said, oh, my mate made it. Mm-hmm. Next thing I got a phone call from Michael Fish, called me over, he said, right, I want you here, and that was it, I left Kilgaz and joined, joined Fish.
2: Mm-hmm. And Michael
1: was one, another one of those people. It was a really great guy. Really helped me a lot. And and I did cutting in because I'd already taught myself cutting, mm-hmm. learning from that AA Wiffy book, which everyone in Savile Row—if if you haven't got it, you should have it.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I learned from that and and then adjusted it. Um, and then then I, I worked for fish right up until, as I say, the plug was pulled by the backers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we didn't have a job. So then I went finding workshops and then went back to tailoring for companies. Bricker um, and Mellow is, is the main one, Adrian and Bootroy, which was about in them days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked for them for several years until, same thing again, a friend of mine was at Benson and Clegg um, and he was leaving. They said, you don't know a tailor that would fancy a job, and he went, oh, no wonder, might. And I went down, there, saw David, and I thought, yeah, I could do with a change of scenery. So I went down, and I worked with Benson & Cleggs um, for a long time. Uh, and then um, I'm, I'm from Blackheath. I, I lived around Blackheath, and um, I'm, also, I'm also a musician. I've been playing for years. So I was in a wine bar in Blackheath, and someone handed me a guitar, and I said, you yeah, know, give us a song. It was a friend of mine. <laughs> So I did, and a guy was sitting around the table for us. He, um, he said, well, how do you know? It was John, a guy called John. Um, he said, how do you know him? I said, oh, we're tailors together. He said, well, where would you do your tailoring? And I told him. And he said, no, come and work for us. Mm-hmm. So this was Tobias, and this was right. managed by a guy called John Brand, but owned mm-hmm. by another guy called Dennis, who's since passed. Um, so I went in as a... Uh, as a tailor into Tobias, right. and then
0: and how uh, old were you? Were you at the time?
1: Whoa, I'm terrible with years. Um,
0: Eighty-eight.
1: So that's. Uh, I was probably forties, mid-thirties, oh, right, okay. something right, like that.
0: Okay, okay, okay,
1: been around the workshops for quite a long time, um, and we we bought it in. Um, we actually—I went there before eighty. I was there in about eighty-five, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then the the company decided to sack the manager,
0: right? Mm.
1: And they had no one to run it, so they they called me in and said, "Do you fancy buying it off of us?" Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, "Do I?" And then I had a friend at the time who was also looking for a job, and he was a cutter,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I was the tailor. So we went along as a double unit to the bank and said, we need this X amount
2: mm-hmm.
1: on a saddle row business. And they said, yes. And we bought it one, one day right. We with a couple of tailors working for a shop. Next week, we owned it um, okay. and mm-hmm. we were there for 20 odd years.
0: Out, out, out of curiosity and feel free to refuse to answer. But just, just as a reference, for what I would like to know, in, in the 80s, this happened, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how much was that business bought for in the 80s?
1: Um, well, there's a curious thing with tailoring. Right. It to us but I mean, I'm talking 80s. It sounds a lot of money, but now you have a job buying a car with it. But I think they offered it for about 25 grand, something like that.
0: Wow. <laughs> what? We, we didn't pay I that. I think I think I was speaking a few years ago, and I, I I was I think I was talking to Sue Thomas, uh, from Savile Row Bespoke, and uh, I don't know whether it was thirty four Savile Row, thirty one Savile Row, one of those. Uh, uh, I think, I believe I I don't know who's there now, but one of those uh, thirty numbers on Savile Row, and she said that the rent of that uh, place was twenty five thousand a month.
1: I bet yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, wow, this is incredible, well, we, incredible. We
1: were 31A, that was our number.
0: Right. And,
1: um, so, yeah, so they, they offered the business to us. Mm-hmm. And we said, but you don't have a business. You've got a shop, right. Right. but you don't have a business. And they said, yes, we do. We've got... I said, if we left there, where do you think the clients are going to go?
0: Uh-huh.
1: They're not going to stay there. They're mm-hmm. going to go wherever we go. Yeah. So you've got the premises and you've got a business but the actual clients we've got mm-hmm. because we've been servicing them now for three or four years. Yeah. And I had to think. Um, so we eventually got it down to 12,500.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, this yeah. would make every young person now cry. <laughs> <laughs> it, it,
1: um I think the rents, the rents and rates. I think the rents were about thirty thousand a year,
0: right? And right.
1: The rates were about it's about sixty grand for the for the the, the two together, yeah. Um, and then we were there twenty years. Obviously, that increased.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And then we had a um, a lease review like you always get, which so it yeah. all went up a little bit. But by that time, we were established so we were making the money for it. And mm-hmm. then um, then that whole corner, Mm -hmm. us, Anderson and Shepherds, Bowen Bowen and Arundel, all got bought out, the whole, Mm -hmm. all the leases ran out. So that was the time when we thought that was about 2003, 2004, something like that. And Mm -hmm. that's when my partner and me, he he took the east side, I took the south and Mm -hmm. I've got a lovely workshop, proper workshop made at the end of the garden. Um, Mm -hmm. It's all it's all aircon and it's lagged and it's lovely and warm in the winter and uh, we've yeah. got radio up there and music and so it's great. So I started yeah. working in, Um and that's how that's and that's where I've been ever since, basically.
0: Right. So this is a very good uh, actually point to ask this question. I, I can imagine, and I could be wrong, but because th- this is differs per person, but I can imagine that if if someone has a shop on Savile Row. And then at some point, for whatever reason, they stop having that shop on Savile Row. Anything else would feel like a downgrade. But you seem to have turned it into an upgrade. So could you you tell us a little bit about how you dealt with the fact that, oh, you won't be having a shop on Savile Row anymore? Will that maybe... Uh, decrease my credibility or will that you know demotivate me or whatsoever did you have any of those thoughts at the time no not really because um i think uh let's see
1: 2003 so i was probably mid-50s getting on like that and i I was thinking well i'll slow down anyway and what i've what both me and my partner have done we cherry-picked the clients we got rid of Mm -hmm. all the ones that were awkward and difficult to deal with. But we had some fabulous clients that were really lovely and would order four or five suits at a time. And there's always places in Savile Row, Holland and Sherry and mm-hmm. Dormais and um, who was the other one, Wayne Shield, that could let let you have a room to, to mm-hmm. do fitting in. And um, and also I, I was doing, I've known Alan Bennett. I've known mm-hmm. him for. Time he's an ex-Kilgar guy younger than me but I've known him for a long time and he was really good so Mm -hmm. Alan often said and I I I did some work I was doing some work for him making coats for him so he said if you've got any fittings to do you can use our fitting which was kind of him so that Mm -hmm. was really nice so that helped him nine times out of ten that's where I did my fittings in Alan's and I tried to make them on a Saturday so it didn't muck Mm -hmm. his sort of shop and his business up too much and that worked fine and then like I told you earlier, slowly, I was getting more and more work from different another couple of shops at all you couldn 't do something mm-hmm. for me in um, what I think the, the cutter I worked with in allen's in mm-hmm. Davis, uh, although all those back then now was Pat Murphy, yeah, Pat went to Geeves and Hawks and he, he he said, "If you want to do some work for us at Geeves and Hawks, John, so I now had Alan and Geese and hawks. So mm-hmm. I started doing those, and then Pat moved from Geese and Hawks to Huntsmans. So then I started getting Huntsmans work. So I was getting mm-hmm. so much work that I didn't need the private clients anymore. It was, it was. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, I almost regretted when someone said, "Oh, can you make me a suit?" And I had to drive to Surrey or, or down to yeah. Southampton. I thought, "Oh no, I could." When it can be posted, to, or, or I can pick it up in Savile Row, make it mm-hmm. and take it back. That's all I got to do. And it mm-hmm. became. That became a preferred way of working, I must admit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was enough. And then Pat, um, before um, the, the change of ownership of Huntsman's quite a few years back, um, I used to go in Fridays and Saturdays and work just so that I'd still had that little bit of going into town and and... and Meeting, meeting my mates and going for a drink on a Friday night with, with other tailors you know mm-hmm. uh, that was that was nice that little social scene and, and and making in London so I did that for several years and then then they changed hands and everything and that that all stopped so that's mm-hmm. when I sort of died at home
0: full time um, right, right. doing ever since mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so <clears throat> as, as I'm curious to know your thoughts uh as as someone who has kind of like apprenticed on and around Savile Row, worked on Savile Row, has owned the shop on Savile Row. John, what do you think that makes, what what has made Savile Row special in the past? And what do you think makes Savile Row special today? Because one of the interesting things that you said in the beginning was that there were all these tailor shop around Savile Row. And then only when everything started to shrink did they concentrate in one area. Now, at the moment, uh, it's the, the last time I visited Savile Row, it seemed very kind of like quiet, although there are some other things shuffling around and some companies come up and some companies go. But what has your view been, because you have a longer perspective uh on Savile Row. So what what do you think made Savile Row special in the past and what is what why would it why is it special today or is it special today?
1: Um, I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Um, a lot of things changed. When I started at Kilgows, there were still several shops on Savile Row.
2: Mhm.
1: I think Kilgows, early 60s was the same where you couldn't get a suit made by them. Mhm. were recommended by two other clients Mm -hmm. Um, in fact there was a lot of shops on Savile Row that didn't have a window it was misted you know that that misted glass and just shop. So
0: I uh, think Myron Mortimer has that still something like that they had it until a few years ago yeah Yeah, Yeah.
1: Um, I think there was one in the middle of Savile Row that just a glass window with that opaque glass with, with the name on it. And mm. a bit scary, I would have thought, to, to, you know, to walk in, you don't even know what price they're charging. So it was mm-hmm. all this recommendation. So Savile Row, there was so much work in the 60s. Mm. It was coming out of everywhere. Um, we used to have a shelf, all tailors have a shelf they put their work on. And mm. um, that used to be loaded. I didn't have to ask my governor, what to start next because there was just so much work there. I just looked at the next date that's the one I'm going to do and mm. and that's how it was um, that obviously stopped over the years and shrunk um, um, but now I think uh, what with COVID mm-hmm. that sorted um, a lot I think a lot of companies got rid of some tailors obviously maybe maybe a lot used that Chance to retire, mm-hmm. um, and also some apprentices probably thought, "Well, this isn't going too well," so they've left the trade. So now what you've got is companies fighting over each other to try and get mm-hmm. um, the work made to find the decent tailors, mm-hmm. uh, and which which is good. I think that that's. Uh, I think you know there was too many. Too many got taken on. In my opinion, that mm-hmm. weren't up to making a Savile Row suit, but because right. the command and the demand of the work at the time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they were taken on. Um, and I've seen—I mean, I've seen stuff on Instagram that
2: mm-hmm.
1: I look at it and, and the shops put lovely suit made blah blah blah. This is for, and I look at it and think if I'd have given that to kill in the sixties, they'd have sent me back to undo it and re, you know, it's mm-hmm. some of that. I think, how do you get away with that?
0: Right. Uh, right.
1: And there was a, a little bit of, of uh, what's the word? I, th- I think that the work just over, overshadowed everybody. It just, it just got too much. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and they need to get out. And also with rents and raises, right. Um, rents mm-hmm. and rates rising. Um, you, have to, you have to get that work out and get it paid for, mm-hmm. to pay, pay the rents. Um, some of those are big premises down there. I mean, Geeves is huge. Huntsman's is big. You yes. know, they're big is to maintain.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so this is why I think, like we said earlier about tailors going out on their own, they're finding mm-hmm. nice little areas around Chilton Street or around yeah. St. Ch- or, you know, um, where you can, you pay a quarter of the rent and there's mm. still nice areas and there's still, and clients, to be honest, are, if they're getting a nice suit.
0: Yes, happy. very flexible, yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: so I, th- I think that's, that's, uh, that's sort of helped, um, sort of Savile Row. Uh, it's going to help with all these going into the smaller smaller units. Um the big shops I'm sure will just keep going. They they do, mm. although Kilgows sadly have closed. They're gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. um uh and you hear rumours about other shops but um mm. I don't know. I don't live in rumours. But you it's uh a lot of the shops have shrunk. Um mm-hmm. you mentioned Mayor Mortimer earlier or Paul that that Least that shop was huge and had a basement and everything. They mm-hmm. they've let that go. They've now got a, a nice little unit, just the three of them up there, and it's mm-hmm. perfectly perfectly adequate for what they do. It's great. They make nice mm-hmm. suits. and Get clients in there, and it's mm-hmm. in the area when I was brought up. That was several, that was part of the Savile Row area, Sackville Street, and you know Dover mm-hmm. Street, all those mm-hmm. um, Burlington Street. They were all tailors in all those places. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, I think it may end up going mm-hmm. back that way. You know,
0: do you think that we will have in the future, maybe I don't know, twenty years time, thirty, forty, maybe even a hundred years time, another Savile Row, but not on Savile Row, obviously, like maybe in a different street. Ah, that's a question.
1: Um, I think I think Savile Row will survive. Whether, as you say, whether it's the actual Savile Row. Mm-hmm. I think there would become there yeah there'd possibly that there'd be another tailoring district as such mm-hmm. um it's it's I feel sorry for uh some of the because the the rents and especially the rents are are mm-hmm. crucifying um mm-hmm. they just don't seem to stop you know um
0: yeah
1: so it's to run a business must be really quite hard on Savile Row now I mean we we had it when we had our business, that was the heyday. We were paying a, a decent price
2: mm-hmm. for,
1: for the premises, but enough for us to make a living. When it gets to a point where you can't make a living from it, you're paying all your, all your profits, you're paying to the, the leaseholder, mm-hmm. something like that, then, then it's time to go, you know? Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, when I, when, when I was at Mr. Fish, we had the entire building
2: mm-hmm.
1: at Mr. Fish from the basement right up to the flat on the top floor which was great because if you were ever stuck in London we all, mm-hmm. all had main guys we all had keys so if you're stuck in London there was a flat on the top floor of that building that we, we could stay in there was showers up there you could and just come down in the morning and start work you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. but that's all gone now I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's in there at the moment but they've only got the ground floor obviously like, you know so mm. but yeah that's um, it has shrunk it has shrunk
0: what sort of benefits do you, do you see in multiple companies being close to one another? Like, like it has been on Savile or Soho. Like you said, there were a lot of workshops in Soho. Uh, what sort of benefits do you think it has for companies to, even though if they are not always per se competing, because they're also collaborating on many ways, but yeah. what sort of benefits do you see for, for shops and workshops to have uh, each other in like a close proximity.
1: I think there is a benefit because it it it, it puts a, a sign over the area anyway. You know mm-hmm. when you get uh, um, when we we live through when I, when we took over Tobias, um, the, the traditional English client mm-hmm. was waning. Mm-hmm. Um. Um but at that time we had the arab clients coming in and they were fantastic so and for several years that's that's who we we dealt with we we made for a lot of those guys and they love fantastic cloths and that. it was great to make for them and it was it was really really good and then that started waning that business started waning and then the americans came in mm-hmm. and that i think that is still a big percentage yes. of sales business now um, mm-hmm. so I think it's great for American clients that they just visit a street or, mm-hmm. or an area as such but mm-hmm. they've got it all there and each house as you know each house has got its own little individual quirks and style mm-hmm. um, and, and I know I know clients I know our clients when we had mm-hmm. to buy they try several shops they don't just go to Huntsman's or to Geeves and Hawks or yes they'll yes. try one there and then I'll go down the road, try one there. Mm-hmm. Um and you know that it's a nice little way to sort of keep the keep the whole tailoring business going. I, I think it's good that they're in close proximity. I, I think it mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. works
1: works well. And of course, all the tailors mm-hmm. that are making all in those little workshops in that Soho, I don't think so as many as there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um and of course um, the pandemic made a lot of guys work from home and they've mm-hmm. realised and work from home, so they've now sorted mm-hmm. themselves out nice little workshops to work in. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those sort of um, Soho workshops, I think they're now advertising companies or things like that, you know, that sort of thing. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, it's, it's tailoring can be done anywhere, basically, as long as you've got yeah. the right machine, the right, you know, and you're making the right stuff, and you can get it, get it up to London one day a week and pick mm-hmm. up the next lot. Then, then it's fine. It work, works good.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah.
1: there are companies. I mean, and Hawks have still got quite a large workshop, mm-hmm. and Huntsman's obviously have got a decent workshop. And is it Paul's, Henry Paul's? I, I think mm-hmm. that's where Craig works in Henry Paul's. Um, they've got a workshop in their basement there, which you can. See, I always wave to Craig as I go past. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, um Richard, they they there's there's a workshop there, isn't there in 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 and Morgan?
0: Yes, it's number twelve Salvo Row, I believe. Yeah, I, I I think it used to be one of the Huntsman workshops back in the days. Right, right. I I don't know whether it's still a Huntsman workshop legally, like or, or on paper, yeah. but. But I've I, I've heard that there used to be like seventeen tailors, uh, yeah. like just packed, you know.
1: Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, twenty four boards we had in wow. the workshop in Billgas. Yeah. So
2: yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, they used to pack us in, but yeah. it, it didn't feel packed, you know. Mm-hmm. And we Billgas mm-hmm. had these special boards, I think they were Scandinavia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they weren't just the square board that every or the rectangle ball that everyone's used to now. It had a curve cut out of it and then the iron thing there and then it came along.
0: Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> a strange shape. Supposed to be the tailoring board, but it worked fine, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: None of those. And and you had a stand which had all your cottons on it and had the wire for the iron. It, it's and we had those huge great Fifteen-pound irons that kill had with the low, medium, and high, and yeah, when you put yeah. it, you could burn through wood. I tell you, I'm quite so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and that's that's how, I mean. You really got a muscle in your right arm lifting yeah, that. Yeah. But uh, now it's all steam irons. Um, yes, we've, we've got a proper iron and a steam iron. So we, horses for courses. So certain things we use the proper heavy yeah. iron for, because uh, the steam iron. Does
0: help. No. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, one of the things you mentioned earlier to me is that Tobias Taylors was one of the, if not only, companies back then that took on apprentices. And, uh, and you also mentioned that you learned very quickly during your apprenticeship. Now, why do you think that at the time Row companies or the companies in the area weren't that interested in taking on apprentices?
1: We don't know, it's, it's everyone we sent. I mean, um, obviously Huntsman's had a few premises, a few apprentices and so did Geeves, and, mm-hmm. but not to the, um, they had mostly tailors. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of it might be the tailors fault because a lot mm-hmm. of tailors say to them, do you want to take the apprentice? No, I can't be bothered, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, doing, mm-hmm. I'm doing my work, that's all I need. Mm-hmm. Um, because Kilgows, when, when you took an apprentice at Kilgows, mm-hmm. they gave you a sort of fee for doing that for the first year, mm-hmm. because as a tailor, you will lose money on an apprentice in the first year because they're learning. Mm-hmm. So Kilgows subsidized that um, for the first year. And by the time the first year is over, that apprentice is now not costing you money, you might not be making you much, but it's uh, at least it's not costing mm-hmm. you. you're not losing. So now you can afford to teach him. And that that again worked really well. That that was a good. I think I think um a few shops still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, um but yeah, Huntsman's I think have got some apprentices. I don't know how many, because I've been in there for years. Um mm-hmm. I think Gives have. Um, because it's it's the only way to keep the, the trade going, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: But the trouble is now with a lot of shops. um I mean, Morgan's—they must have had apprentices as well with the old one, didn't they? One or two. Oh yeah, uh,
0: yeah. We we had yeah. like five, six people. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: That's fabulous. Yeah, that's that's and it came round, but there was this twenty-year gap where no one mm-hmm. took them on. And it was only the smaller shops, us, and a couple of others that that actually were taking on apprentices. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because we we had the business. Um, so I wasn't actually having to earn my money as a tailor. I did the mm-hmm. tailoring in the, in the shop we owned mm-hmm. while my partner did the cutting. And if he finished cutting, he'd come on to tailoring as well.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we had this leeway that... Mm-hmm when I was doing the book work, I was where we could teach an apprentice. We we, mm-hmm. we didn't have Whereas I, I understand that a, a tailor that's working his entire day making mm-hmm. a living might mm-hmm. be a bit, no, I don't need an apprentice or I don't want to take on an apprentice. Um, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And I can understand that. But thankfully mm-hmm. that's come round and uh, mm-hmm. it, there's far more t- apprentices on Saburok pre the pandemic anyway. Than there was, you know, twenty odd years ago. Um,
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So, so,
0: <clears throat> please continue.
1: No, just uh, that, that's, a, that's a good thing, you know. I mean, you, you yeah. need they're, they're the they the life blood. If you don't carry it on, you're you're gonna. Mm-hmm. We had several. Ah, um, oh, when we had the shock, we had uh, especially Japanese um, lads who's. Parents have sent them to Savile Row to do an apprenticeship. Wow. Um, Yeah, and paying for them while they're in London. Um, I'm not saying it was only Japanese, but that's in our shop, that's what we had, three or four come in. But we realized that that's not going to be any good to us because we want an apprentice that's Mm going to make our business that when he's done his tailoring... stays, yeah we can employ that Kilgar unit where mm-hmm. he can then teach another apprentice and, and he mm-hmm. parts, it becomes part of our business. Mm-hmm. Whereas young uh, Japanese lads, mm-hmm. they would learn it, get it under their belt. And then the idea was to go back to Japan, which which we, you know, obviously the right way of doing it for them, but it, it didn't suit the way we wanted to teach people basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we We wanted it so we could expand the business and, and keep our. It's nice if you've got your tailors in house, then you, mm-hmm. then you know you know what you're getting, and you can go and have a chat. You know, if you find mm-hmm. some, or you know, you can have a chat with the tailors, and you can't just do this for me, can you? Blah blah blah. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I I think that's that's a good way of going.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, thankfully, it's it's spread through throughout. Um, yeah. Paul, I think Paul's had a few apprentices. I mean, I haven't been in all these businesses. Way mm-hmm. back, so I don't know, but we I know from people we had we had people coming in every day to us nearly from the schools, mm-hmm. um, from the colleges, and they tried every every place in Savile Row, you know, and there was no one taking on apprentices. Mm-hmm. We were lucky when we closed down, um, when the leases ran out, um, we still had Craig, our, our young lad that we were teaching, and we didn't have the way of teaching him because of the, it was clothes the Leafs had gone out of Claude. But because we, we were known in Savile Row, we found a tailor in, mm-hmm. in Paul's that was willing to take him on. And he taught him really, Paul is now, was he? he? taught him really great. And Craig's a really good tailor now. So he stayed in a trade, which is good to see, you know, it's,
0: uh mm-hmm.
1: completes the journey as it were.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So one thing you mentioned was that there wasn't anything at or at least at at Kilgar's you didn't feel like you were held back as an apprentice and i've i've spoken to some tailors and i don't know what it it surprises me how many people have this feeling but i i don't know what to make of it so perhaps uh, maybe you can uh, provide some insight obviously when someone is trying to learn something whereby um, let's say intuition is involved. You know, at some point, you develop a feel for something. It's very yeah. difficult to mechanically explain tailoring away. Although some parts you can, but other parts, as you gain experience with different materials, you just develop a feel for it. So, for for something that has that aspect, obviously one needs to go through a, a good training, you know, with a lot of different materials, different techniques, make a lot of mistakes, etc. How can someone who just starts out make the distinction between I'm being held back versus this is just something that takes time to learn? Uh, How does one know that, you think? That's
1: a real difficult question. I I, I know what you're saying. It's, um, I mean, when we were learning we had rumors i mean fortunately the guy who taught me wasn't it but we had rumors from some of the apprentices that some of the older tailors Mm -hmm. they were working for weren't didn't want to share all their little tricks Mm
2: -hmm.
1: they'd show you the basic but they know there's a much nicer way of doing that and there was a certain amount of that going on where where you're not going to bleed my brains i'm going to show you just the basic, but you're not going to get the rest, which Mm. I I think is probably derogatory because rocks, I've shown her everything. Um, Mm. It's, you know, sometimes I'll see her doing so. I'll still obviously keep an eye now, we're only two boards apart, so I have a a look every now and then, oh, hang on a minute, rocks, just change that, do this like that. And Oh, right, okay. Um, And it's that, sort of keeping an eye on and, and I can understand. I mean, there is a certain, it does take time to learn. You're quite right, what you said earlier. Mm-hmm. It does take. Um, there's probably people out there that think, oh, I want to learn this, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm now pad. I now need to learn this, and I now need to learn this. Um, and it doesn't work like that. You, you've got mm-hmm. to get it under your belt and understand it
2: mm-hmm.
1: before you can move on. This was always our bug that we had with some of the college people that came to us Mm -hmm,
2: mm
1: -hmm. um, because they'd say, right, I've done my college degree, I I can make a coat. Um, Mm -hmm. And I said, but can you make a coat? I said, Mm -hmm. when when did you make a pocket? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And they'd say, well, I made a pocket in the first year. We did pockets in the first year. I said, have you made a pocket in the last two years? No, no, we've gone on to, that's no good. And that's the whole thing of being an apprentice is mm-hmm. you learn how to pad, then you learn how to canvas. So once mm-hmm. you learn how to canvas, mm-hmm. you then learn to put the pockets in. But you don't just learn to put the pockets in, you're still canvassing. Yes. You're still, then you put your pockets in. Then mm-hmm. when you learn the next bit, you're still canvassing. And now you're putting the pockets in. Now you're learning to put the facings on, but you're mm-hmm. still doing the canvassing. And the po- it's a continuum. So you're always doing the pockets, always doing that. Then you learn facings. So that becomes every single job. It's not something mm-hmm. you learnt three years ago, like, right, I've done pockets. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't work like that it, and that's mm-hmm. what makes a proper apprenticeship and that mm-hmm. takes time because some obviously there's some people get these things quicker than others yeah. and there's, there's different aspects. It's amazing how um, we've had different apprentices and you show one apprentice how to put facings on
0: mm-hmm. and they
1: nail it straight away. Yeah, but yeah they'll have difficulty with understanding top collars. But then you'll get another one who really struggle with facings,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but the one on the top collar, I'm like, it's been doing it all their life. So mm-hmm. people struggle with different aspects as well. So you've got to take that into account mm-hmm. when, when you're teaching someone. Um, we always used to say, um, because we used to get lads and, uh, and, and girls in, and we'd say, yeah, okay, if we had the space, if – one of our apprentices moved up a little bit. And we'd give them six weeks. We always reckon six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, because in six weeks you can see, I mean, obviously you start on padding. That's the first thing. But you, with, with that six weeks you see how someone holds a needle and mm-hmm. how they hold a pair of shears. And that's important because if they're still mm-hmm. fumbling with a needle
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and shears and that, after you know they're they're, they're just not right for tailoring, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, had, we had one lad came in and I think in six, six days, seven days, he, we knew that like that, he, he can be a tailor.
2: Mm-hmm. He, just mm-hmm.
1: had it. he had it, he had it in his hands and we could see it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He did things, he was doing things that we hadn't even shown him that he obviously thought, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it, that takes, if you find someone like that, then you hang on to them because mm-hmm. they will be a tailor. They, they, yeah. you've not got to fault it into them because it's going to come a lot of it's going to come natural mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's important as well mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but you're right that the, the time is I suppose some people might feel that they're not being hurried enough but then mm-hmm. you've got to see the other side maybe the tailor's thinking but well, they haven't got that yet I can't push mm-hmm. them on until they've got that mm-hmm. so it's it's a bit of both, I think. You know, it's a mm-hmm. bit of um, each. Each individual works at a different pace uh, and picks up things differently, mm-hmm. and struggles, as I said earlier, struggles on different aspects of a code. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are kids who are being mm-hmm. held on longer than they need to because it's uh it's it's um, cheap labour in many ways, isn't it? If you can hang mm, on yes. to. Them, um, it's a bit like internship. I've always struggled with that word because
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's. Um, I mean, that would what they'd make us do now, I suppose, if we still had the shop. You wouldn't yeah. take a paying for six weeks. You'd give him an internship and see how he. Which I, I just find wrong. But then I'm, I'm old.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think that's completely right. You know, uh, it it overall it's it isn't an easy thing because when you. I mean, you you've taught your daughter, but when someone is like, if, if if I'm going to a workshop, I'm a complete stranger to that person, and that person is a complete stranger to me. So, but at the same time, I am the person who who goes there to learn. So I have to build some sort of uh, commitment for myself, and and also trust that that person will decide and and teach what's best for me. But you never know that with with strangers. So um, there there are always times during an apprenticeship when one just feels less confident maybe. Maybe you've messed up two pockets and now you're thinking are they going to fire me? Am I made for this job whatsoever? Uh, Or they just tell you well you have to make 30 more pockets. And you think well Um, Do I have to make 30 more pockets because that's the rigorous training that I'm receiving and it's best for me? Or do I have to do that because they just don't have anything else to give to me? So how how have you found that with with your own daughter? Because obviously it's a very different relationship. But I'm pretty sure that you as someone who's been there for a very long time in this trade... You know what she has to learn or w- when she was starting out what she had to learn to really become as competent as possible um, yeah. did did she always trust trust the fact that you would ask her to do things that's that would make her competent? Or did she also get fed up and be like, Hey dad, what the hell is it? I'm padding like 70 canvases now. Show me how to do something else. You know, did you have that as well?
1: Oh, we definitely did. We've had our rows. Um, it's, it's like teaching a daughter to drive. It's, it's a hard thing, you know, <laughs> um, because she's got her own opinions as you know, is mm-hmm. quite right. But yeah, most of the time she listens to me. Um, and, We've we've had our mistakes. She's she, she's made mistakes, but then so did I. Um, mm-hmm. I spent a weekend when I was at Kilgour's, absolutely sweating, mm-hmm. um, because my governor was playing cards with some of the older tailors, and he said, "I said, what shall I do?" He said, "Cut the facings on that dinner jacket," mm-hmm. and I didn't check. Right it was and it was a roll collar. Uh oh. <laughs> I cut it like a normal facing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: He said, "Oh, you've done terrible there. You you're, you're <laughs> going to be Mr. Shearer on on Monday." Yeah. And I, I was scared all weekend. And I mm-hmm. went in Monday and Ron Shearer was fabulous. He went, "Oh, we use that in another job. We got plenty of that." Oh, yeah. oh, I Been worried all weekend. Um <laughs> So you make your mistakes, rocks. I mean, you don't, and that's the best way to learn. I mean, Mm. we've all we've all cut things we didn't mean to, and snipped Mm. pocket, or snipped the lining in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I've tried to teach rocks, and I've learned. When when you first start this trade, it's it's it's, you 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 think it's almost like brain surgery. You've got to everything's got to be perfect. Mm -hmm. But when you've been in it a fair old time, you you realise it's only lining. I can get another bit of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, rocks, the worst thing rocks ever did, she cut a four-part wrong um, when we did some work for Richard James. And um, I just went in and said, look, she had an accident. She's cut down here where she didn't mean to, right down the forepart." Um, I said, get the cloth. I'm quite happy to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they said, oh, no, don't be silly. So they got the cloth in. Mm-hmm. But she was distraught for a couple of days, you know, and, <laughs> uh, which is good because then you don't make that mistake again, you know. So Yes. Yeah. But it can all be got round. We, we're not, as I say, it's not brain surgery here. We're making coats, you know, and as long as they look nice and you get it right, then it's, there's, there's a, like I said to you earlier, there's 50 ways of doing it. And mm-hmm. as, long, as long as you get one of those ways right and it looks great on the client, that's mm-hmm. all you've got.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you what do you think that? Well, what's what's your take on mastery? What do you think that mastery means? Well, who who do you see as 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 a master tailor, uh, and and how would you describe them? What characteristics do they have?
2: Um.
0: Wow, that's hard.
1: Uh, I think I I just think it comes with experience. I think mm-hmm. a master tailor is someone who's been through it, made the mistakes and, and made nice codes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically mastered his trade. Um, Rox will bring me stuff uh, and I've had apprentices in the past bring it and they go, I've done this, what do I do? And as a master tailor, you go, oh, just do this. And you mm-hmm. can show them but they're panicking because they, they see a mistake but mm-hmm. be rectified and... And I think it's that, it's that knowledge that mm-hmm. you know what, what to do and how to, how to get beyond it without too big a drama, really.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's having all knowledge. There's a lot of people call themselves master tailors,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but they can only make a lounge jacket. Mm-hmm. Or a... I've taught rocks, uh, dinner jackets. I've taught mm-hmm. roll collars i've taught her tail coats morning coats dress coats so she knows all them she might we don't get that many dress coats so if she got another one i might have to keep looking over her shoulder and making sure she's getting it right so mm-hmm. that's my idea of a master tailor someone that can make every garment
2: mm-hmm. not
1: some who just does lounge suits and says oh no i i, I don't want a tail coat i can't make them
2: mm-hmm.
1: um mm-hmm. so i think that's that's one definition of master and tailoring Mm-hmm. that you know how to make each garment and you're not, you're not scared of sort of making mm-hmm. it all. Okay. When I was at Mr. Fish, we made some weird stuff. We, mm-hmm. we made um, we made cashmere dresses for men, worn over trousers with big long boots. Yeah. We made a silk, a silk sort of jacket that buttoned down the side, no collar, it was like a beetle collar. No. Uh, and silks going round like that and then down the front, <laughs> you know. So I've learned to do yeah. all that. I've sort of... Um, sort of adapt and you, you try things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I had one jacket for fish where they wanted the old medieval sleeves, which mm-hmm. had three slits in them and then the lining mm-hmm. coming out through the sleeves, you know, like right, these days. Right, yeah. And that took some working out. But as long as you sit there and think about it, you, you can mm-hmm. work it out, you know, you can mm-hmm. get there. Um, I did a complete fashion show at Michael Fish. We had a fashion show which we all, like celebrities were invited to it at the, at, at the evening and it was a whole do and I worked with um, uh, Sam Edelstein who was the designer at the time, I don't know it happened to Sam but I worked with him and, and he used to do his designs
2: mm-hmm. and he'd
1: say right John come over my flat I've done the designs now you show me where the tailoring cuts have to go to mm-hmm. make that so then I'd sit down with his designs and go right we're going to need a cut here front mm-hmm. cut we're going this here, this here. So between us, we'd make the actual prototype and then Mm -hmm. I'd make a twirl up and then we'd go on and we'd get it made. Um, And Mm -hmm. I've still got got the catalog from that and I've got some pictures taken at that fashion show. Um, On the TV and everything, it was great, great fun. Mm -hmm. But it's that sort of thing, if you get thrown in the deep end to do that, you either do it or you give up and you, you just got to, right, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna make these things, I've never made them before. Um, and I'll, I'll have a go and um, we mm-hmm. did something. we got we got everything out really really mm-hmm. good it was thoroughly enjoyed mm-hmm. it and that's what I've tried to teach rocks: is is um, adapt and mm-hmm. try when she says dad how do I do this I don't immediately go oh I go work it out
2: mm-hmm. then if
1: she's still struggling after half an hour then I go right this is what you do
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, she still shows me sleeps because that's obviously the final part, mm-hmm. which which is I've seen so many shocking sleeves on Instagram. I mean, we used to call them cowboy sleeves, John Wayne sleeves in the old days, because <laughs> they're like that, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, and I've taught her how to put drape in a sleeve, how to put roll in a sleeve and fullness. Mm-hmm. Um, but she still, when she puts the sleeve in, she'll go, Dad, check that, so I'll have a quick look. Mm-hmm. But I won't yes i i, I won 't tell her what to do. I will go too high or too low, and then she sorts it out or mm-hmm. need to pop the front and, and right. things like that so she's sort of doing it on her own, but she's just getting my final tip on mm-hmm. it as it were um, yeah which which is which is she's which is good she's she 's turning mm-hmm. out some when i think I, I i as a father, we tend to push much more mm-hmm. than you, someone who is not related to you. And I, I realized the other day I was, I was saying, you've got to get your speed up. You've got to get your speed up. Mm-hmm. And then I realized she's only actually been a tailor. Forget the apprenticeship. She's only actually been a tailor for four years. Mm. I've still got some of my old log books where I was getting 14 pounds for a coat.
2: Yeah, And,
1: uh, and that, that was when I was about four years into tailoring. And I was making... A forward and a base that week, or maybe one finisher, and she's doing that already. And I'm having mm-hmm. to go. She's passing up, and I realise I shouldn't be. I just think mm-hmm. in my mind she's been in it longer, and she's because her works are good. Mm-hmm. I'm ultimately why has she done that by now? And then I'm realising because she hasn't mm-hmm. got that that far yet. You know,
0: yeah, she's, yeah, yeah.
1: It's confidence, speed. It, it's it's. um I've seen plenty of fast tailors, skiffle mm-hmm. tailors, who to been in my day. That can bang the coat together, be it's shocking. But mm-hmm. if you've got a job and you've got to get it out, that's. Mm-hmm. And the tailors, the, the um, shops used to use those sort of tailors. Mm-hmm. Of tailors. But it's um, rocks can get a speed up. It's confidence. It's Once you become confident with pockets, rather than constantly checking them and checking them, you're confident. You can now make mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, she puts on great facings so now where mm-hmm. she used to call me have I got enough fullness in that facing she doesn't because her facings are good now so those mm-hmm. sort of things are speeding up we're still mm-hmm. slow on, on um, shoulders because she needs to get she likes to get them right and,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: side because shape has come back a big way you know um, mm-hmm. and we're, we're making a lot of shaped coats so that means a lot of side seam stretching and a lot of inlay mm-hmm. stretching and a lot of lining, a lot of mm-hmm. people don't realize they do all the stretching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They don't put enough blooming lining in the, in the. So when they come to, they, they fasten along the bottom, come up the side seam. Yeah. And they suddenly realize the lining ain't going to make the top because it's too tight. They haven't put that extra <laughs> bowing. in. So, which is what I've shown rocks to put that extra pleat mm-hmm. in the, like, the forepart so that, that yeah. when you put your lining, it'll go round. Um, mm-hmm. I was told by Mr. Bricker years ago. I put a facing on slightly long mm-hmm. uh, and I said, I'll alter that, Mr. Bricker. I didn't realize I'd got it that long. And he took a look at it, even it's not that long. He said, um, A dirty coat inside means mm-hmm. a clean coat outside. And that's what I want. So I thought, wow, yeah. So I'm stuck <laughs> by that. I, still, I don't put bad facings on, but I've always said to Rocks, <laughs> the more fullness you can get, because some people put such clean linings in everything but, but the time that's been dry cleaned, once or twice, mm-hmm. or gone through a steam iron, that line is going to. You're going to have tight linings, so you yeah. do need you do need that fullness mm-hmm. um, to get over that. And inside a coat, it's as long as the linings are clean down the front here. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's and the facings aren't. I mean, you don't want tons of fullness, obviously, but yeah. sometimes again, that's that's cutters for you.
0: Unfortunately, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah.
1: Either cutter who. This coat had a massive lapel, but he had, the client had a big belly. Mm -hmm. He'd given me a facing that wide. Mm -hmm. So it's gone down the lapel okay. It's missed the bottom of the coat by about four inches. So how do I get that? So I've I've shrunk and stretched and shrunk and I've got it round. Yeah. But I knew it was gonna come back. Mm -hmm. But then when that facing you put and that's, and I told him, I said, I take pictures now. If I if I get, <laughs> if I, I'll, I'll take a picture. And go. Do you want me to put this on, or you're going to send me a new bit of like, Yeah,
0: you know. yeah. Well, that's a good thing to do. You know, it's uh, it's very difficult to work with uh, well not enough material, um, especially when you have to finish the work and you don't have the time to communicate, wait for a new piece, and all of that. So, uh, it sounds like a wise choice to make those photos. <laughs> Okay, so I, I, have, I have a list uh, of things that I've written written and uh, based on our conversation okay. and uh, I'd, I'd like to do a speed round. So um, I'll say the word or, 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 or whatever the question is and you tell me in one word the first thing that, that comes up your mind. Okay. All right, okay. So ready? hmm L- Savile Row.
1: Tailoring, really.
0: Tailoring. Apprenticeships.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely needed. I would say Okay. Yeah.
0: Recommendations and this is this refers to the recommendations that you had to be referred to by two clients to for the company to make you a suit. So, those recommendations.
1: Wow. Like we, we yeah. Good. Recommendations are good.
0: We good. used to okay. get Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, mastery
1: Mastery is a complete skill, I think.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. A complete skill. Okay. Most influential person? Oh. Hmm. I guess...
1: Oh, you got me there. That's... Because there's been a few. But I, I, I think probably my governor who taught me the trade. Because right. he taught me... So. He had the biggest influence over turning me into a tailor. Mm hmm, mm
0: hmm, mm
2: hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely my boss.
0: Yeah, oh, okay, cool. okay. Um, favorite musician?
1: Oh, well, see, I'm from the 60s. Well, I'm not from the 60s. I was born in 1945. So I'd lived the 60s as it should have been lived. And so I've got several because I've seen them all live. Okay. Uh, Wow, Jimi Hendrix has got to go. Yeah, pretty. Hard. I saw him live several times in small clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Jimmy. I think Jimmy probably goes in there.
0: Okay, okay. Um The most difficult thing in tailoring sleeves. Sleeves. With, yeah.
1: I'll add. Um, I'll add to that, that. check sleeves.
0: Check sleeves, oh, and do you mean the cutting of check sleeves or the, the the sewing in of the the, the check sleeves?
1: A bit of both, but the, the, mm-hmm. the cut. Most I I say to all shops that we work for,
0: mm-hmm.
1: leave the sleeves to me. Don't
0: and um, them. Right, so so you what what do you mean when you say leave the sleeves to me? What do they have to give you, basically?
1: They just give me the 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 coat back,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. with the sleeves. Basted because we've made a base, yeah. And then what happens? I'll base those sleeves back in to the pitch. Right. They're supposed to be. Right. I'll mark. I'll mark the difference in the checks. Yeah. Five eighths for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. I will then cut five eighths off the top and mm-hmm. lengthen the cuff by five eighths. Those sleeves will go in perfect.
0: Right. I see.
1: I, I don't see how cutters can do it. I, I, I know mm-hmm. of cutters. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't touch my sleeves. I've recut the check sleeve.
0: How? Mm-hmm.
2: How have
1: you recut? You don't know how much fullness I put in the sleeve. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a tailor uh, a couple of years ago who only puts an inch and a half fullness in the sleeve.
0: In the entire sleeve? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's very I know, little.
1: I, I put three inches.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so if the cutter had cut check sleeves for both of us, one of mm-hmm. us is going to get those sleeves in wrong because it won't, you know. So the best way, if you've got a tailor you can trust,
2: mm-hmm.
1: leave, I mean, Pat Murphy, Stephen, mm-hmm. all those have all left. They just leave their sleeves to me because they know that I'll cut them properly and get them in. And I've shown rocks how to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was shown an old trick again by Mister Bricker years ago
2: mm-hmm.
1: that when you, when you take, for argument's like five eighths off of the top of the sleeve. Mm-hmm. You don't just cut five eighths all round, otherwise mm-hmm. you'll. Um, what you do, you use the other sleeve,
0: yeah, the template, yeah. So yeah.
1: you mark five eighths down, put the other sleeve on top, right, and then cut round it, and you'll get the width. You'll get, and then you then you use the sleeve you cut on top of that one, cut round. Yes, it. perfect. Yeah,
0: yeah. So essentially, so, you use it as a pattern. Yes. Uh, for yeah, for, that's yeah. It. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I'm. I'm sure our viewers and listeners are gonna love that. So, uh, okay, okay. Um, what does it mean to be a craftsman? Uh pride. Pride. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I think.
1: I think. One thing I haven't tired of, and like, I mean, as, as I said, I'm in my seventies. Mm-hmm. still, I still get a buzz and a pride when we put a jacket on our dummy at the workshop, when it's finished, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we go, yeah, that looks nice. Yeah. And if you haven't got that, then you're doing it, then mm. you're just doing it, you know, without thinking. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. beautiful answer, very, very good answer. Um, okay, now there is, I've got two more. So would you rather know Ten thousand techniques, but do them once, or no one technique but do it ten thousand times.
1: Definitely the one technique.
0: Really? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Most people have gone for that answer. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think once you and as I say, over which is what I pass on to rocks over the years, we've honed our techniques so that we mm-hmm. know which bit what to do on every every sort of thing, you know. So yeah, mm-hmm. one
0: okay okay and and last but not least john Davies.
1: <laughs> um john davis is drastically trying to retire but <laughs> enjoy tailoring too much so i don't do the amount of work i used to do mm-hmm. I, I slow down because i i spend i've got a studio a music studio
2: mm-hmm. which
1: i i got and get my guitars out and Put tracks down and stuff like that, so um, I enjoy that. So it's a it's a bounce between the two. But I, I can't see me as long as I can still see properly, mm-hmm. and and my hands still work okay. I I can't see me stopping tailoring. I I, I just mm-hmm. enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. it's one of those things, and uh, um, it's it's helped having rocks at the workshop because. Mm-hmm. I can pass that sort of buzz along, as it were, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And she's got that same, and, as I say, four years of tailor, but she's got that same sense of pride. When she's finished a jacket, she puts it on the dummy and she goes, "What do you reckon, Dad?" And oh, yeah, it's good. And you can yeah. see it on the face, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That's
1: good. That's all you need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic, John. I've enjoyed every second of this conversation. And hopefully uh, we could do this again with Roxanne as well, because I know she, she's busy at the moment. Uh, yeah, yeah but, definitely. But we'll, we'll get there.
1: Okay, that'd be lovely.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you as well.
0: And that was John. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you'd like to see more of John and Roxanne, or you'd like to get in touch with them, check out the links to their Instagram page in the description of this video. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions or whatsoever, please let us know in the comment section and we sure hope to see you again in the next episode. Until then, bye bye.